Chapter 10, Part 2 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 10, Part 2 The Markan Hypothesis. Had Strauss calmly examined the bearing of Weiss's hypothesis, he would have seen that it fully confirmed the line he had taken in leaving the fourth gospel out of the account, and he might have been less unjust towards the hypothesis of the priority of Mark, for which he cherished a blind hatred, because in its fully developed form it first met him in conjunction with seemingly reactionary tendencies towards the rehabilitation of John. He never, in the whole course of his life, got rid of the prejudice that the recognition of the priority of Mark was identical with a retrograde movement towards an uncritical orthodoxy. This is certainly not true as regards to Weisse. He is far from having used Mark unreservedly as a historical source. On the contrary, he says expressly that the picture which his gospel gives of Jesus is drawn by an imaginative disciple of the faith, filled with the glory of his subject, whose enthusiasm is consequently sometimes stronger than his judgment. Even in Mark, the mythopoic tendency is already actively at work, so that often the task of historical criticism is to explain how such myths could have been accepted by a reporter who stands as near the facts as Mark does. Of the miraculum, so Weisse denominates the non-genuine miracles in contradistinction to the genuine, the feeding of the multitude is that which, above all others, cries aloud for an explanation. Its historical strength lies in its being firmly interwoven with the preceding and following context, and this applies to both the Markan narratives. It is therefore impossible to regard the story, as Strauss proposes to do, as pure myth, it is necessary to show how, growing out of some incident belonging to that context, it assumed its present literary form. The authentic saying about the leaven of the Pharisees, which, in Mark chapter 8, verse 14 and 15, is connected with the two miracles of feeding the multitude, gives ground for supposing that they rest upon a parabolic discourse repeated on two occasions, in which Jesus spoke, perhaps with allusion to the manna, of a miraculous food given through him. These discourses were later transformed by tradition into an actual miraculous giving of food. Here, therefore, Weisse endeavors to substitute for Strauss's unhistorical conception of myth a different conception, which in each case seeks to discover a sufficient historical cause. The miracles at the baptism of Jesus are based upon his account of a vision which he experienced in the moment. The present form of the story of the transfiguration has a twofold origin. In the first place, it is partly based on a real experience shared by the three disciples. That there is an historical fact here is evident from the way in which it is connected with the context by a definite indication of time. The six days of Mark chapter 9 verse 2 cannot really be connected, as Strauss would have us suppose, with Exodus chapter 24 verse 16. The meaning is simply that between the previously reported discourse of Jesus and the event described, there was an interval of six days. 
the three disciples had a waking spiritual vision, not a dream vision, and what was revealed in this vision was the messiahship of Jesus. But at this point comes in the second, the mythico-symbolical element. The disciples see Jesus accompanied, according to the Jewish messianic expectations, by those whom the people thought of as his forerunners. He, however, turns away from them, and Moses and Elias, for whom the disciples were about to build tabernacles for them to abide in, disappear. The mythical element is a reflection of the teaching which Jesus imparted to them on that occasion, in consequence of which there dawned on them the spiritual, quote, significance of those expectations and predictions, which they were to recognize as no longer pointing forward to a future fulfillment, but as already fulfilled, close quote. The high mountain upon which, according to Mark, the event took place is not to be understood in a literal sense, but as a symbolical of the sublimity of the revelation. It is to be sought not on the map of Palestine, but in the recesses of the spirit. The most striking case of the formation of myth is the story of the resurrection. Here, too, myth must have attached itself to an historical fact. The fact in question is not, however, the empty grave. This only came into the story later, when the Jews, in order to counteract the Christian belief in the resurrection, had spread abroad the report that the body had been stolen from the grave. In consequence of this report, the empty grave had necessarily to be taken up into the story. The Christian account now making use of the fact that the body of Jesus was not found as a proof of his bodily resurrection. The emphasis laid on the identity of the body which was buried with that which rose again, of which the fourth evangelist makes so much, belongs to a time when the church had to oppose the Gnostic conception of a spiritual, incorporeal immortality. The reaction against Gnosticism is, as Weisser rightly remarks, one of the most potent factors in the development of myth in the gospel history. As an additional instance of this, he might have cited the anti-Gnostic form of the Johannine account of the baptism of Jesus. What, then, is the historical fact in the resurrection? Weisser replies, quote, The historical fact is only the existence of a belief, not the belief of the later Christian church in the myth of the bodily resurrection of the Lord, but the personal belief of the apostles and their companions in the miraculous presence of the risen Christ in the visions and appearances which they experienced. Quote, the question whether these extraordinary phenomena, which, soon after the death of the Lord, actually and undeniably took place within the community of his disciples, rest upon fact or illusion, that is, whether in them the departed spirit of the Lord, of whose presence the disciples supposed themselves to be conscious, was really present, or whether the phenomena were produced by natural causes of a different kind, spiritual and psychical, is a question which cannot be answered without going beyond the confines of purely historical criticism. Quote, the only thing which is certain is that the resurrection of Jesus is a fact which belongs to the domain of the spiritual and psychic life, and which is not related to outward corporeal existence in such a way that the body which was laid in the grave could have shared therein. Close quote. 
When the disciples of Jesus had their first vision of the glorified body of their Lord, they were far from Jerusalem, far from the grave, and had no thought of bringing that spiritual corpority into any kind of relation with the dead body of the crucified. That the earliest appearances took place in Galilee is indicated by the genuine conclusion of Mark, according to which the angel charges the women with the message that the disciples were to await Jesus in Galilee. Strauss's conception of myth, which failed to give it any point of vital connection with the history, had not provided any escape from the dilemma offered by the rationalistic and supernaturalistic views of the resurrection. Weisse prepared a new historical basis for a solution. He was the first to handle the problem from a point of view which combined historical with psychological considerations, and he is fully conscious of the novelty and the far-reaching consequences of his attempt. Theological science did not overtake him for sixty years, and though it did not, for the most part, share his one-sidedness in recognizing only the Galilean appearances, that does not count for much, since it was unable to solve the problem of the double tradition regarding the appearances. His discussion of the question is, both from the religious and from the historical point of view, the most satisfying treatment of it with which we are acquainted the pompous and circumspect utterances of the very latest theology in regard to the empty grave look very poor in comparison weiss's psychology requires only one correction the insertion into it of the eschatological premise it is not only the admixture of myth but the whole character of the markan representation which forbids us to use it without reserve as a source for the life of jesus the inventor of the Markan hypothesis never wearies of repeating that even in the second gospel it is only the main outline of the life of Jesus, not the way in which the various sections are joined together which is historical. He does not, therefore, venture to write a life of Jesus, but begins with a general sketch of the gospel history, in which he gives the main outlines for the life of Jesus according to Mark and then proceeds to explain the incidents and discourses in each several gospel in the order in which they occur. He avoids the professedly historical forced interpretation of detail, which later representatives of the Markan hypothesis, Schenkel in particular, employ in such distressing fashion that Vreda's book, by making an end of this inquisitorial method of extracting the evangelist's testimony, may be said to have released the Markan hypothesis from the torture chamber. Weisse is free from these over-refinements. He refuses to divide the Galilean ministry of Jesus into a period of success and a period of failure and gradual falling off of adherence, divided by the controversy about legal purity in Mark chapter 7. He does not even allow this episode to counterbalance the general evidence that Jesus's public work was accompanied by a constantly growing success. Nor does it occur to him to conceive the sojourn of the Lord in Phoenician territory, and his journey to the neighborhood of Caesarea Philippi as a compulsory withdrawal from Galilee, an abandonment of his cause in that district, and to head the chapter, as was usual in the second period of the exegesis of Mark, flights and retirements. He is content simply to state that Jesus once visited those regions, and explicitly remarks that 
while the synoptists speak of the pharisees and scribes as working actively against him there is nowhere any hint of a hostile movement on the part of the people but that on the contrary in spite of the scribes and pharisees the people are always ready to approve him and take his part so much so that his enemies can only hope to get him into their power by a secret betrayal Visa does not admit any failure in jesus work nor that death came upon him from without as an inevitable necessity he cannot therefore regard the thoughts of suffering as forced upon jesus by outward events later interpreters of mark have often held that the essential thing in the lord's resolve to die was that by his voluntary acceptance of a fate which was more and more clearly revealing itself as inevitable he raised it into the sphere of ethico-religious freedom this was not vice's view jesus according to him was not moved by any outward circumstances when he set out for jerusalem in order to die there he did it in obedience to a supra-rational higher necessity we can at most venture to conjecture that a cessation of his miracle-working power of which he had become aware revealed to him that the hour appointed by god had come he did in fact no further miracle in jerusalem how far isaiah chapter fifty three may have contributed to suggest the conception of such a death being a necessary part of messiah's work it is impossible to discover in the popular expectation there was no thought of the messiah as suffering the thought was conceived by jesus independently through his deep and penetrating spiritual insight without any external suggestion whatever he announces to his disciples that he is to die at jerusalem and that he is going thither with that end in view he journeyed not to the passover but to his death the fact that it took place at the time of the feast was so far as jesus was concerned accidental the circumstances of his entry were such as to suggest anything rather than the fulfillment of his predictions but though the jubilant multitude surrounded him day by day as with a wall of defence he did not let that make him falter in his purpose rather he forced the authorities to arrest him he preserved silence before pilate with the deliberate purpose of rendering his death inevitable the theory of later defenders of the Markan hypothesis that jesus giving up his cause in galilee for lost went up to jerusalem to conquer or die is foreign to vice's conception in his view jesus breaking off his galilean work while the tide of success was still flowing strongly journeyed to jerusalem in the scorn of consequence with the sole purpose of dying there it is true there are some premonitions of the later course of markan exegesis the second gospel mentions no passover journeys as falling in the course of the public ministry of jesus consequently the most natural conclusion would be that no passover journeys fall within that period that is that jesus ministry began after one passover and closed with the next thus lasting less than a full year Visa thinks however that it is impossible to understand the success of his teaching unless we assume a ministry of several years or more than three years indeed mark does not mention the feasts simply because jesus did not go up to jerusalem 
quote, intrinsic probability is, in our opinion, so strongly in favor of a duration of a considerable number of years that we are at a loss to explain how it is that at least a few unprejudiced investigators have not found in this a sufficient reason for departing from the traditional opinion. Close quote. The account of the mission of the Twelve is also, on the ground of intrinsic probability, explained in a way which is not in accordance with the plain sense of the words. Says Weisse, quote, We do not think that it is necessary to understand this in the sense that he sent all the Twelve out at one time, two and two remaining alone in the meantime. It is much more natural to suppose that he only sent them out two at a time, keeping the others about him. The object of this mission was less the immediate spreading abroad of his teaching than the preparation of the disciples themselves for the independent activity which they would have to exercise after his death. These are, however, the only serious liberties which he takes with the statements of Mark. When did Jesus begin to think of himself as the Messiah? The baptism seems to have marked an epoch in regard to his messianic consciousness, but that does not mean that he had not previously begun to have such thoughts about himself. In any case, he did not, on that occasion, arrive all at once at that point of his inward journey which he had reached at the time of his first public appearance. We must assume a period of some duration between the baptism and the beginning of his ministry a longer period than we should suppose from the synoptists, during which Jesus cast off the messianic ideas of Judaism and attained to a spiritual conception of the messiahship. When he began to teach, his development was already closed. Later interpreters of Mark have generally differed from Visa in assuming a development in the thought of Jesus during his public ministry. His conception of the Messiah was therefore fully formed when he began to teach in Capernaum, but he did not allow the people to see that he held himself to be the Messiah until his triumphal entry. It was in order to avoid declaring his Messiahship that he kept away from Jerusalem. Quote, it was only in Galilee, and not in the Jewish capital, that an extended period of teaching and work was possible for him without being obliged to make an explicit declaration whether he were the Messiah or no. In Jerusalem itself, the high priests and scribes would soon have put this question to him in such a way that he could not have avoided answering it, whereas in Galilee he doubtless on more than one occasion cut short such attempts to question him too closely by the incisiveness of his replies. Like Strauss, Weisse recognizes that the key to the explanation of the messianic consciousness of Jesus lies in the self-designation Son of Man. He says with almost prophetic insight in his Problem of the Gospels, published in 1856, we are most certainly justified in regarding the question what sense the divine Saviour desired to attach to this predicate, what, in fact, was intended to make known about himself by using the title Son of Man, as an essential question for the right understanding of his teaching, and not of his teaching only, but also of the very heart and inmost essence of his personality. Close quote. But at this point, 
Lysa lets in the cloven hoof of that fatal method of interpretation, by the aid of which the defenders of the Markan hypothesis who succeeded him were to wage war, with a kind of dull and dogged determination against eschatology, in the interests of an original and spiritual conception of the messiahship supposed to be held by Jesus. Under the obsession of the fixed idea that it was their mission to defend the originality of Jesus by ascribing to him a modernizing transformation and spiritualization of the eschatological system of ideas, the defenders of the Markan hypothesis have impeded the historical study of the life of Jesus to an almost unbelievable extent. The explanation of the name Son of Man had, Weiss explains, hitherto oscillated between two extremes. Some had held the expression to be, even in the mouth of Jesus, equivalent to man in general, an interpretation which cannot be carried through. Others had connected it with the Son of Man in Daniel, and supposed that, in using the term, Jesus was employing a messianic title understood by and current among the Jews. But how came he to employ only this unusual paraphrastic name for the Messiah? Further, if this name were really a messianic title, how could he repeatedly have refused messianic salutations, and not until the triumphal entry suffered the people to hail him as Messiah? The questions are rightly asked. It is therefore the more pity that they are wrongly answered. It follows, Visa says, from the above considerations, that Jesus did not assume an acquaintance on the part of his hearers with the Old Testament messianic significance of the expression. Quote, it was therefore incontestably the intention of Jesus, and anyone who considers it unworthy betrays thereby his own want of insight, that the designation should have something mysterious about it, something which should compel his hearers to reflect upon his meaning. Close quote. The expression son of man was calculated to lead them on to higher conceptions of his nature and origin, and therefore sums up in itself the whole spiritualization of the messiahship. Visa, therefore, passionately rejects any suggestion, however modest, that Jesus' self-designation, son of man, implies any measure of acceptance of the Jewish apocalyptic system of ideas. Ewald, had furnished forth his life of Jesus with a wealth of Old Testament learning, and had made some half-hearted attempts to show the connection of Jesus' system of thought with that of post-canonical Judaism, but without taking the matter seriously, and without having any suspicion of the real character of the eschatology of Jesus. But even these parade-ground tactics excite Weiss's indignation. In his book, published in 1856, he reproaches Ewald with failing to understand his task. The real duty of criticism is, according to Weisse, to show that Jesus had no part in those fantastic errors which are falsely attributed to him when a literal Jewish interpretation is given to his great sayings about the future of the Son of Man, and to remove all these obstacles which seem to have perverted hitherto the recognition of the novel character and special significance of the expression son of man in the mouth of him who of his own free choice applied this name to himself 
he cries, quote, How long will it be before theology at last becomes aware of the deep importance of its task? Historical criticism, exercised with all the thoroughness and impartiality which alone can produce a genuine conviction, must free the master's own teaching from the imputation that lies upon it the imputation of sharing the errors and false expectations in which, as we cannot deny, owing to imperfect or mistaken understanding of the suggestions of the Master, the Apostles, and with them the whole early Christian church became involved. This fundamental position determines the remainder of Weiss's views. Jesus cannot have shared the Jewish particularism, he did not hold the law to be binding. It was for this reason that he did not go up to the feasts. He distinctly and repeatedly expressed the conviction that his doctrine was destined for the whole world. In speaking of the parousia of the Son of Man, he was using a figure, a figure which includes, in a mysterious fashion, all his predictions of the future. He did not speak to his disciples about his resurrection, his ascension, and his parousia as three distinct acts, since the event to which he looked forward is not identical with any of the three, but is composed of them all. The resurrection is, at the same time, the ascension and parousia, and in the parousia the resurrection and the ascension are also included. Quote, the one conclusion to which we believe we can point with certainty is that Jesus spoke of the future of his work and his teaching in a way that implied the consciousness of an influence to be continued after his death, whether unbrokenly or intermittently, and the consciousness that, by this influence, his work and teaching would be preserved from destruction and the final victory assured to it. Close quote. The personal presence of Jesus, which the disciples experienced after his death, was, in their view, only a partial fulfillment of that general promise. The parousia appeared to them as still awaiting fulfillment. Thought of thus as an isolated event, they could only conceive it from the Jewish apocalyptic standpoint, and they finally came to suppose that they had derived these fantastic ideas from the Master himself. In his determined opposition to the recognition of eschatology in Strauss's first life of Jesus, Weisse here lays down the lines which were to be followed by the liberal lives of Jesus of the sixties and following years, which only differ from him, not always to their advantage, in their more elaborate interpretation of the detail of Mark. The only work, therefore, which was a conscious continuation of Strauss's, takes in spite of its just appreciation of the character of the sources, a wrong path, led astray by the mistaken idea of the originality of Jesus, which it exalts into a canon of historical criticism. Only after long and devious wanderings did the study of the subject find its right road again. The whole struggle over eschatology is nothing else than a gradual elimination of vice's ideas. It was only with Johannes Weiss that theology escaped from the influence of Christian Hermann Weiss. End of chapter 10